In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was bright brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Maggie. Well, we're beginning a new series uh, for this fall uh, in the book of Ezekiel. So before we begin, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father in heaven, we are before you, as we've been reminded um, many times already in this service, as your people. Um, and in some ways, that's the most significant and important thing that can be said about us. Uh, even though you have made each of us uniquely and differently and have gifted us in different ways, um, and we all come into this room carrying um, different weights and burdens and struggles and trials from physical suffering uh, to mental and emotional anguish uh, to the ordinary stresses and trials and temptations of living uh, in the world. Nonetheless, when you gather us together here, uh, we are gathered as your people, uh, and you have gathered us here for the sake of your glory. You have gathered us here because you have put your name on us. Um, and that, again, is a thing that we don't want to take for granted, uh, that you have somehow um, staked your own reputation and your own glory on a people who are broken, uh, but a people whom you have redeemed and are redeeming uh, and who yet will redeem, a people that you are making more and more into the likeness of your Son. Um, it is our deep desire that this congregation uh, here uh, in Newton, gathered in from around the whole metro west and beyond, around Boston, would be a people that would put the glory of your Son on display uh, by the ways that we love one another, the ways that we lay down our lives for one another. Father, we still feel the challenge and the conviction uh, of that high calling. Uh, and so we know that we're a people that need help. We know that we are a people uh, who need your Spirit to dwell within us. And so we're thankful uh, that that's the very thing that you've promised. We know that we're a people who need to be changed. Uh, into your likeness. And we thank you 
that you have chosen these very ordinary and mundane means, reading and hearing your word, coming to a table that you have laid before us, um, sitting under your word to do that work of, of changing us. So Spirit, um, please do that work now uh, in, these, in these next minutes uh, as, we, as we sit uh, under uh, the word, um, your word, as it was revealed to your servant Ezekiel. Father, I, I pray, uh, as I always do, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, earlier this year, I was in Chicago uh, with a gathering of, of pastors, and uh, you know, we were coming back from a break. Everybody was just kind of like standing around in different clumps, chatting to each other, generally making noise. Um, and, and the guy leading was trying to get us back together, and he, he, you know, he tried all the different like teacher tricks, like, you know, if you can see me, clap your hands, you know, if you can see me, clap your hands twice, and we weren't falling for that. Um, finally, he just said, the Lord be with you. And we all turned and said, and also with you. And he said, well, now that I have your attention. Um, and I got a good laugh. Um, but it, it was only, I mean, it was just a few sentences later that he kind of paused and said, you know, I'm not sure I should have done that. I'm not sure that was entirely appropriate, um, that I would uh, invoke the presence of the Lord uh, in order to shut you all up. Because um, it's just, it, it, it's too weighty. Right, it's too substantial uh, a thing, the presence of the Lord. We're going to spend this fall digging into what he meant by that, digging into what the presence of the Lord means. What, what is its significance? The significance of the fact that our God is a God who, from the very first pages of Scripture uh, to the end, has made it his purpose to dwell with his people. Uh, and the significance of the fact that in Christ and in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, he has fulfilled that purpose and that promise uh, in ways that are shocking um, and which, as I've said several times today, we can't take for granted. What does it mean to say the Lord is with you? What does it mean to say that the Lord is with us? Why does that matter? What difference does it make to you tomorrow? When you go to work or you go to school or you're in your homes or your neighborhood, wherever you are, what difference does it make that the Lord is with us? Um, I want to give you a definition. Uh, a couple falls ago, we uh, spent the fall talking about the fear of the Lord, and we used the book of Job as a lens through which to talk about the fear of the Lord, and we gave you a definition. We said the fear of the Lord is, I wonder how many of you can remember this, an off-filled orientation toward God in all aspects of life that leads towards obedience. And we unpacked that. Um, again, in the hope that this is helpful, um, we're going to talk about the presence of the Lord as being the ever-present, awe-inspiring power of God to give life and strength to His people. Let me say that one more time. Uh, if you're taking notes, kids, if you're doing that thing with, for the blow pop, Right, write this down. The presence of the Lord is the ever-present, awe-inspiring power of God to give life and strength to his people. Um, we'll repeat that a lot. And you can listen and see if we like make little changes to that as we go. Uh, we might. We do these, these definitions in order to be 
uh, helpful, um, but they can morph a little bit. Um, and just like we used the book of Job as a lens through which to look at the fear of the Lord, um, our series in Ezekiel is not going to be a verse-by-verse, verse, let's try to go through all of Ezekiel. We're going to use the writings of the prophet Ezekiel as a lens through which to talk about the presence of God. That's our plan uh, for this fall. So, um, today, as an introduction, I'm going to talk about the different parts of that definition and how we see it here in this passage. Right. So again, we're going to talk about how the presence of the Lord is ever-present. Ever-present. Secondly, awe-inspiring. And secondly, how it is His power to give life and strength to His people. That's thirdly. I think I said secondly twice. You know what I meant. Um, so that's what, we're going to, that's what we're going to talk about. Let me give you a little bit of background. Okay, just kind of the, the bare minimum for what you need to understand where we are in the Bible. Who is, who is Ezekiel? Uh, Ezekiel was a priest. He was um, descended from Levi. He would have been ordained as a priest on his 30th birthday. As it happens, though, he's writing this possibly on his 30th birthday or when he's 30 years old, where it says in the 30th year, and it doesn't say anything else like in the 30th year of the reign of so-and-so or of the exile or anything like that. In the 30th year probably just means in my 30th year. So he's writing this when he would have been ordained as a priest. But that's not going to happen for him because he's not in Jerusalem. Uh, he is not in Judah where he grew up. Uh, he is writing this from Babylon. Uh, it says, I was among the exiles by the Kebar Canal. Uh, which, is, which, is in, which is in Babylon. So what's happened? Um, Ezekiel is part of um, what is called the first deportation uh, from Judah. Okay, so if you remember, when God brought his people into the promised land, um, he gave them his law, and one of the last things that Moses said to the people before they went into the promised land, you can read this in Deuteronomy 28 and to, to 30, this great back and forth, where he puts the law in front of them, and what he says is, I am setting life before you. Okay, this law that I'm giving you, this is life. This is what life is supposed to be like. I'm setting life before you and also death. You can, you can choose to follow this law, and that's life, or you can choose to reject it and to reject me, and that's death. So choose life. That's what, that what, that's what Moses said. But it was very clear in Deuteronomy before they even got into the promised land, that if the people turned away from God, if they rejected him, if they rejected his law, um, then they would not be allowed to stay in the land. Um, and that is what has happened. Okay, so fast forward now about 700 years, um, or 600 years, uh, to, um, to when Ezekiel is writing. Um, the people have turned away from God. I'm skipping over a lot of details here. They have rejected his law. Um, and they are being taken into exile. Um, in Ezekiel's 30th year, it, he, he gives us in this first verse, he actually gives us the date, which we can actually figure out is like late July 593 BC. We can, we can get it with that much precision. Um, this is a couple years before the final destruction of Jerusalem when Babylon comes and completely wipes it out, but they've already come through once and taken a lot of people. And one of the ones that they took was Ezekiel. So Ezekiel uh, has sort of seen the beginning of the end for Judah. 
uh, the beginning of the exile, uh, which is going to keep God's people there uh, for 70 years. So that's, that's who he is. That, is. that is when he's writing. That's kind of his context. Um, and that actually brings us to this first point, right, that the presence of God, so he's writing this and he has a vision, and he has a vision of the presence of God. The first point is that the presence of God is something which is ever-present, right? Um, youth group, last night, those of you who were at Bradley's house for the fall kickoff, Bradley gave you a devotional. And, and while you guys were playing um, what, quite honestly, was the longest game of family I have ever seen, um, oh my goodness, while you were playing that, I started flipping through one of those just to, just to see what this devotional was all about. And I saw that one of the things that uh, Plantinga, the writer, uh, is going to talk about is the attributes of God. That's one of the, one of the, one of the chapters. Um, we talk about God being omniscient, he knows everything, and omnipotent, he can do anything, and omnipresent, he is everywhere. Um, there's a lot that can be said about these attributes as kind of big philosophical characteristics to describe God. Um, I'm going to give you the really short version on omnipresent. And then there's actually a reason that we wanted to say not omnipresent, but ever-present. Because in the Bible, when it talks about God being everywhere, it, it gets right to the point. It's not an abstract philosophical category to say, you know, just God is, is everywhere. The point is that God is here. The point is that God is there. That wherever I am, God is here with me. Wherever I may go, he is there. He's always there. The psalm that we read, uh, that Catherine read for us, Psalm 139, is a, is a great example of this. Um, psalm 139 uh, at, at verse 7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is a word for the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. You have to understand, Ezekiel is sitting by the waters of Babylon. He is in exile. He has seen everything that he was living for and hoping for begin to fall apart. He was being trained to be a, a priest in the temple. It's a temple that's going to be destroyed about five years later, and he's already been ripped out of it. So he is in a place where he could really be asking the question, has God abandoned his people? Has he abandoned me? Does he see me? Has he forgotten me? And the first thing that this vision tells him is no. Against all odds, God is here. In the unlikeliest of places, he is in Babylon. Psalm 137 captures the grief of the exile. Psalm 137 says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us 
one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I asked you earlier the question, what difference does it make to say the Lord is with you tomorrow morning? When you go to work, when you go to school, when you're in your home. Do you ever feel like those places, the places where you spend most of your week, are a foreign land? Um, are places that, at the risk of hyperbole, you might say, feel God-forsaken. Or at least it feels like there are other gods in charge. You know, the, the, the pagan worldview that Ezekiel would be familiar with was one in which every different country had its own god. As you went from place to place, you had to figure out who was God, who's in charge. How do you keep them happy, right? Um, we don't think in terms of pagan gods, but does it ever feel like when you're at work, someone or something else is in charge, is, is ruling? Does it ever feel like in your, in your home, there's, there's a different order, there's a different system? The first thing that we're being reminded of in saying that the presence of God is ever-present is that there is no place where God is not, and there is no place where God is not God. What difference would it make tomorrow morning for you to remember wherever you go, God is here, and He is still God. He is still ruling. That's the first thing that we're going to explore this fall. God is ever-present. He is here. He is there. He is with you, with us. The second thing we see here is that the presence of God is awe-inspiring. Um, this is a weird chapter. Uh, there was a reason that we just read the first five verses and then, the, and then the last few. If we had read the whole thing, it would have been several minutes of, of you standing there going, what on earth is this? Um, and you can, you can kind of pass over it um, and, and see how in this vision there are these living creatures uh, and they have multiple faces, and they have wings, and they have wheels, and there's wheels inside of wheels. And you, what kind of psychedelic steampunk monstrosity is this? What is this that Ezekiel is seeing? Um, this might be the answer to the question. The answer to the question. You know, when angels show up in the Bible, and the first thing they have to say is, "Don't be afraid." Maybe it's because they look kind of like this. Um, this would be terrifying, right? Um, it is hard to put together what it is that Ezekiel is seeing, and that's probably on purpose. Um, Ezekiel uses a lot of words uh, in this passage, um, things like likeness and the appearance of and as it were. It's kind of like he's writing, he's saying, I'm trying to describe to you what I saw and I just can't. But this is kind of like what it was. Um, it is, it is crazy what Ezekiel is seeing. This is widely regarded as one of the fullest and strangest depictions of God's glory in the entire Bible. That glory means two things. It means that God is other, like radically other. He is not like us. Um, but it also means that he is weighty. Glory means that God is, is other. This is not a God that you could fit into a box. Uh, this is not a God that you could fit into your categories. If you are, if you are looking uh, for a God um, who will help you 
uh, to overcome some particular challenge. And if you won't do that, then forget it. You're going to have nothing to do with it. Um, this is not a God that you can put into your service. Um, this is a God who is completely other and beyond uh, and over his creation. Um, and a God who is that is going to challenge you. A God who is real, uh, a God that we don't make in our image, but who makes us in his, uh, is a God who is going to challenge us uh, at some point, and maybe at many points. But it also means that God is weighty. The word glory in, in Hebrew literally means weight. It means matter. It means substance. Um, God is the most weighty, the most substantial, the most worthy. He matters more than anything else. Um, Augustine says something uh, in, his, in his confessions um, that I think captures what's going on here uh, in terms of, of drawing us into the worship of this glorious God. Um, Augustine says, My love is my weight. By it I am moved. Um, he's capturing the idea that what you love, what you find most lovely, what you find most substantial, important, weighty, is going to draw you toward it as surely as gravity. Right? So as surely as if you're on a bike ride and you get to the top of the hill and you crest and you get over and it starts to getting a lot easier, right? because by your weight you are now being moved down in the direction of the road, um, our love is similar. Our love moves us. Um, if God is the most lovely thing of all, it means that we are moved toward him. And the question to ask yourself would be, is that true of you? What is it that moves you? What is it that draws you? The, the vision that Ezekiel uh, is, is receiving here uh, is one in which God and his glory can have no rival. So that's the second thing. God's presence is ever-present. It is awe-inspiring. The last thing is that it is the power of God to give life and strength to his people. One reason that we say that it's the power of God to give strength to his people is Ezekiel's name literally means the Lord strengthens. And that will be a theme of this book, that the Lord strengthens. Um, but the way in which God strengthens his people, we need to add that he gives life and strength to his people. Because the way that he's going to strengthen his people is unlike anything else. It's, it's not just a matter of taking people who are a little bit weak and making them a bit stronger, a little bit broken, and repairing them. One of the most important images in all of this book, um, the one that you're, you're probably familiar with, if you, if you know any part of the book of, of Ezekiel, you probably know about this vision, the Valley of the Dry Bones, right? We're going to get there in Ezekiel 37. Um, and when God asks Ezekiel this question, you know, can these bones live? The question is not, do these bones need to be made a little stronger? Um, it's, do these bones need to be brought back to life? The way that God gives life and strength to his people is to give life where there is none. To give life out of death. Um, 
when we did our study of the kings uh, in adult ed last, uh, last spring or last winter, um, one of the commentators that we looked at said this about, about um, the message of, of uh, the, the kings. Um, he said, the message of the kings uh, is not, um, hey, Israel, you've, seen, you've sinned, you need to get your act together, uh, and then maybe God will, will, will be on your side if you do that. Um, the message of kings is Israel has sinned, Israel has chosen death, Israel is dead. Israel's only hope is to cling to a God who raises the dead. That's what we're going to be seeing throughout the book of Ezekiel. Where do we see it here? We see it in two places in this vision right at the outset. There's the rainbow, and then there's the man. I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, in, verse, in verse 20, excuse me, 28, in verse 28, it says, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. That's a whole lot of words, but that means a rainbow, Right? There's a rainbow around this God. Where have we seen a rainbow before in the Bible? You know this story. It's with Noah, right? After the flood, judgment if ever there was judgment, wiping life from the face of the earth. God brings Noah and his family out of the ark. He makes a covenant with him, which is basically a reiteration of the covenant that he made in the beginning with Adam, so as to say, we, we are still doing this. And he puts... It says he hangs his bow in the clouds. And he says, this bow is going to be a reminder to me of the covenant that I have with you to not destroy the earth again. Um, there's a sermon by Charles Spurgeon where he points out, first of all, that the word bow there is, is literally a, like a bow and arrow bow, right? So the fact that a rainbow looks like a bow, that's, that's what the word means. God is hanging up his war bow. And then Spurgeon also points out it's significant that the bow is pointing up, right? God has not put the bow there pointing at the earth so as to warn us every time it rains, hey, I can zap you anytime I want. It's a reminder to him. And the fact that the bow is pointing up into heaven suggests that the next time he lets an arrow fly, it's flying at himself. And that is what points us towards the man in this passage. Um, here, here's where Ezekiel really uses a lot of these qualifiers, right? Um, so it's at verse... Now I'm not finding it. Um, oh, it's at 26. Seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. It's three times in half of a verse, he talks about a likeness, a likeness, an appearance. Um, again, it's like Ezekiel is saying, this is kind of what I saw, but this is really hard to describe. And this would have been really confusing for Ezekiel. All, all of the imagery that he's seeing here, right, um, the cherubim, um, even the storm cloud that started it all, um, Back in, back in verse 4, a stormy wind coming out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashing forth continually. All of that would have been readily identifiable. This is divine imagery. Like this, is, this is what it looks like when God takes up residence in the tabernacle. A cloud descends and takes its position 
over the Ark of the Covenant that has these cherubim, these angels with these wings pointing, pointing towards the center. All of that would have looked like, okay, this is clearly a vision of the Lord. What is a man doing there? That would have been really confusing. There's never been a man showing up in the glory cloud uh, in the temple. Ezekiel would not have known what to do with this. Maybe hence the likeness of the likeness of the appearance. What is this? When Bradley and I preached through the Gospel of John, we kept running across references and allusions back to Ezekiel, almost as though John was writing his Gospel with a copy of Ezekiel open in front of him. That's one of the reasons we were so excited to preach this this fall. Um, Ezekiel would not have known what to make of this human figure, um, but John does. Because John also writes about seeing the glory. John starts off his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That, that is something that you're not supposed to be able to write. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he goes on and says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Did you you catch that? No one has seen God, so God, who is at God's side, has made him known. Um, This is the great mystery of the incarnation. Except except that the mystery gets even greater, doesn't it? Um, Ezekiel would have had a hard time knowing what to do um, with this vision. What would he have made of the cross? Um, in John's gospel, he makes it very clear that the glory of the Lord that that power to give life and strength to his people, to give life out of death, is revealed most fully, not in a fiery cloud, but on a cross, in the unlikeliest of places, even unlikelier than Babylon. Jesus' glory is revealed to John not on the Mount of Transfiguration, not primarily there. It's interesting that John's Gospel is the only one that doesn't include that story, even though it says John was there. Um, Maybe that's because John wants to point us all the more clearly, all the more emphatically towards the glory of God revealed where God chooses to be on the cross, giving his only son to die in our place and raising him to bring life out of death. Um, I am excited for this fall. Uh, I am excited to keep exploring these ideas uh, with you um, through the lens of the book of Ezekiel as we talk about the presence of God that, that ever-present and awe-inspiring power of God to give life and strength to his people. Um, and I am also excited that every week, after hearing God's word, we get to come to this table. Um, because it's here where Jesus had, has made promises to be present. Um, and it is here where the Spirit 
continues to do His work to change us, to strengthen our faith, to give us life, and to give us strength. Let's pray before we eat.